to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional backdrop to the political scene. My name is Colin Kidd, and with me I have Ian Duncan, formerly a Conservative MEP, and more recently the UK government's Climate Minister. Ennobled as a working peer in 2017, he is now Deputy Speaker of the House of Lords. Catherine Styler was a Labour MEP for 20 years. More recently, she has been the CEO of the Open Knowledge Foundation and is about to become Chief Executive of Creative Commons. And Stephen Gethins has worked in the NGO sector, specialising in peace building, arms control and democratisation in the Balkans and the Caucasus. He has been an MP at Westminster and was the SNP's front bench spokesman for international affairs and Europe. Our subject today is one that is very topical, indeed a matter of current controversy in the media, the House of Lords. However, we are going to approach the topic in a more general and detached way by looking first at the role played by second chambers in constitutional uh, arrangements. Let me start uh, with a very general question uh, to, to Ian. Ian, as we look around the world, we see some countries have single chamber parliaments, others have two chamber or what we call bicameral parliaments. What's the purpose of having a second chamber? Usually it offers revision. In an ideal situation, the two chambers don't rest in a single party's majority hands. And so as a consequence of that, there should therefore be more detailed examination and it should be a reminder to the government that it cannot simply by its majority alone behave tyrannically and push things through. So when it works well, an upper chamber, a revising chamber, can look in detail at the, uh, the legislation which is coming toward it and can offer amendments which are then returned to the lower chamber uh, for further uh, discussion and onward advancement. And that is when it works well. And I think you can see the benefits in that. A lot of it will ultimately depend upon the individuals who hold office in the second chamber. If they are just like the people in the lower chamber, then you're not necessarily bringing a great deal of difference. But if they are on a different term limit, for example, or a different um, term, there's a different sequence that can be helpful. In the UK context with the appointments, you do get quite a broad range of extraordinarily talented people from very different walks of life who would never seek election uh, full stop but who bring to the consideration and the revision uh, extraordinary intellect, gravitas, insight, and frankly, they're a pain in the bum to the government. Stephen? I would say this, I mean, Ian makes a good point here, and actually none of this is personal, but on the points that Ian raised there, I think he makes a good point about individuals, and, and you know, that's obviously a question for political parties. He also raises a good point about about having that scrutiny and not being within the the control of one party but for a lot of that you need process you i think you do need elections there are systems in the world like the irish senate where you can get individual people but there is an elephant in the room and again this is why i say it's not personal because there are many good people in the house of lords but there is the elephant in the room of the house of lords you know fundamentally which lacks, I'll, I can come on to it in a minute, but which lacks legitimacy, with lacks that democratic process, and also with, with very 
unclear rules about who should be appointed, about how it how it operates, as well. So, but but I, I think it's helpful to flag that. Okay, Catherine, we've we've heard two rather rather contrasting views here of uh, a sec a second chamber. From what you've heard, I mean, do, do you think the House of Lords is? Um, Stephen seems to be saying some kind of neo-feudal abomination, or has he, has he himself does actually serve some kind of useful function? I think that uh, the current way of the way the the House of Lords function is ripe for reform, and I think if we are going to have a two-chamber system of governance in this country that people can buy into, then I do believe reform and electoral process has to be part of that. So we did start with the tackling the life peerage system to begin with, and I think the next stage is elections and reform. And this has been on the agenda for some time, and, and it will continue to be on the agenda. But I think most recently, with some of the events that have happened, the lack of real accountability for those that go into the Lords, the lack of scrutiny, the lack of um, ability for people to have a say, this is all, as I say, ripe for, for reform and for election, for open democracy, and for moving the Lords into the 21st century. And uh, and I think this is this is very exciting. Although when uh, I, I did think when Ian said about the, you know, the holding checks and balances about the tyranny of governing and things. And then when you're talking about the individuals, you are right, Ian, in so many ways that the individuals and the type of scrutiny and debate, that's the, the ability in the Lords to be able to do some of that is, is quite remarkable. And I would say when it came to certainly looking at European legislation, looking currently actually at the misinformation and disinformation work that's been going on in the Lords is quite exceptional. Mm -hmm. However, all that said, I'd like to see a, a, an open, transparent election process in the Lords. And we can't have, what is it, 290 peers who are the age of 71 and 80 and 121, they're 81 to 90 years old. We need to represent the country of the United Kingdom. And we need that to be a representative chamber as well in terms of experience and age and wisdom, as well as in is in representation of diversity too. Yeah, I, I have to say, so I, I, I agree with Catherine, but this does have some significant implications because we live in a we live in a democracy rather than a meritocracy. So who decides who's the best decision maker? Who decides who's the best person to contribute? Well, in a democracy, the electorate usually decide that. Um, and where I'd have some issues with, and this is notwithstanding, there are some really talented people in the House of Lords who make a worthy contribution. I don't think any of us are denying that. But there becomes a question in this of it just not working because there becomes a question of legitimacy. If you're not elected, you lack that legitimacy. During the Brexit process, which I was engaged in and Ian was on the other side engaged in the House of Lords, Sometimes what would happen would be, I, I was hearing people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson and other champions of the House of Lords calling out the House of Lords because they happened to disagree with it. And the House of Lords could never really seriously challenge the government over something like Brexit with substantial and far-reaching implications. And I can remember when the House of Lords disagreed with the the UK government over issues um, over issues like EU nationals, you had a real issue because when people were saying, well, the British people have decided, we've no idea what the British people decided because nothing was written down before that. 
And although some good arguments were made, for example, within the House of Lords, it lacked that legitimacy. Now, if you lack legitimacy, what's the point? And either you have legitimacy, and the only way you can really do that is through elections or through a more open way of, um, of making sure there's balance in the House of Lords, or you're wasting the time and money of everybody who's involved in it and you just scrap it. Yes, Ian, I think there's a case to be made that it's the Commons that, that, that don't want to have a, a legitimate rival chamber. Yeah, absolutely. And you can tell why. I would argue now the Lords needs to be reformed. There's no question of that. Uh, you can't have a second chamber, which when you enter it, you're broadly ashamed to admit it to the broader public because you will be harangued by people who claim that you live in a castle, you're paid a fortune to do nothing, that you know little, that you're a crony of the prime minister. You can fill in any blanks you want, and that just doesn't work. We have to recognise, however, there are different ways of doing it to reform that. So you can argue you can go wholly elected and you will create a rival chamber. And if you cre create the same timescales, then you will literally either have the tyranny of the majority again, or you will have out-of-kilter situations in which there will be different parties in the ascendant. But you can look at a, a hybrid model. You can, for example, recognise that you wanted to, for example, say the, 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 the German model, where you can recognise representation from regions and nations, where you could still have a degree of appointment, but not done by the prime minister, so he's suddenly putting in his cronies, but done by an independent body, open to transparent and public scrutiny. You could recognise that there have to be certain criteria for admission to the Lords. There can be criteria for um, term limits, you know, uh, for um, retirement. There are different ways of doing it. But at the moment, it doesn't work in terms of the, the, the reference point Stephen gave, except it's probably never been better at doing its job. That's the comical part. In terms of the actual scrutiny it does, it is remarkable at doing that. So when we were talking about Brexit, for example, and some of the bigger issues were coming to the fore about, you know, how would, you know, our withdrawal work? You were literally sitting in a chamber where the person who drafted that part of the EU approach, Lord Kerr, was literally sitting there saying, that's all very well you saying that, but that's not what it says. This is what it says. I know that because I wrote it. So you do get a wealth that comes forward. So the scrutiny function has never been more acute than it is now. However, you can't have an upper chamber which in the wider public's perception is illegitimate. It, this doesn't work. So you have to think of what you want to change. And I'm amenable to almost any changes you can imagine. But one thing you have to recognise is you almost certainly will sacrifice some of what it does really well to deliver that legitimacy. And yeah. that's a price that may be worth paying, but you recognise it up front and you pay it. Yeah, it's just that some, on one point, I think I agree that there's better scrutiny and I agree that there's more time and deliberation. And when you look at some of the reports, they are frankly excellent. Yeah. However, how much of that actually creates change? How much of that actually impacts on the government doing something with it? And say the disinformation stuff, spot on. Is the UK government going to actually do anything with it? No. And so you look at this and you think, that unless you have fundamental root and branch reform of the Lords, then the question Stephen has about his existence does come in. So how do you make sure, not just in representation, thinking about is there a way for the, the devolved nations to have a greater say in some things? Is there a way to have a greater way of cooperation? But there has to be a will to reform. And at the moment, you know, much as there's lots of talk, is there actually going to be something go through the House of Commons to create reform? 
I haven't seen that in a government agenda. So it's a fascinating moment to be able to talk about this, but I think we're still a long way off from seeing change. Yeah, there is a there's a fundamental challenge here, which is getting a government, you know, the same went for Labour governments and Conservative yeah. governments with, with majorities, which is it, it suits them to have an, an, an upper chamber that can't really do anything and is unable to do anything. Ian made a really good point. People like John Kerr and there's a and there are a range of others, you know, people like Lord Luce and others on foreign policy, you name it. But actually, nobody's really listening. And if you looked at the, the Brexit process and other processes, who's to say that anybody's listening? So why not send them off to, to work in a think tank or 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 actually work at a university where you could teach as as well. So I think you need to give them that kind of level of legitimacy if you're going to to have it. It's all very well packing the place out with all these worthy people, but there's another way. Who decides who should be going in there? And if you look at the, the latest round with um, Liebriadef, um, with Claire Fox, with Joe Johnson, you know, serious questions around how you actually appoint these people into the Lords. And that means that everybody in the Lords gets tainted. And there's also another question, which is when you're talking about disinformation and you're talking about democratisation, yet you're doing so from the House of Lords, it somewhat undermines the message that you're trying to send out to the rest of the world. I mean, that, that is true up to a point, but <clears throat> any legislature which has a majority can do broadly what it will, unless there is a breadth of opinion within the party of government willing to criticise the government and vote against it. So what you will often find in, in any legislature with a, a majority, <clears throat> you really don't need an opposition because, frankly, no one's listening and usually nobody cares because, in truth, the legislation will move forward according to the rhythm set by the governing majority. It will pass through according to the governing majority. And as we saw in the Scottish Parliament when we take the sectarian song issue, um, a piece of bad legislation passed through with a majority. The opposition said it was dreadful. Everyone else said it was dreadful. Didn't matter. The government had the majority and on it marched. And eventually people recognised it was rubbish and it was then removed. I've got no difficulty with the Lords being completely reformed. I think if you are wanting to go toward a, a, a fully democratic one, then you have to recognise you are now going to have two centres of democratic legitimacy. And that's not a problem. But you need to recognise what it means, because once you do that, it will certainly beg the question, need the Prime Minister be in the House of Commons? Could it be in the upper chamber? How many people from the government need to be in one chamber over another chamber? You then need to start thinking about what sort of democratic structure do you want? And you could argue, let's just go to a unicameral parliament. You just need one chamber. You could argue that if you wanted. But the problem you have with that is there's a majority when it comes, which can do things unfettered, which are not good. And that's the challenge. So the second chamber should give you the checks and balances to stop unfettered tyranny of a democracy. But if you're going to reform it, think carefully about what you want, because you may end up with something considerably worse than you have now, which doesn't do the job that actually the current Lords does well and doesn't offer the full legitimacy on the other hand either. I think you just need to get rid of the Lords full stop. It doesn't really do anything. It delegitimizes the whole process. But actually, if you move on and, and, and there's truth, a consensus around you have to change it. But 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 there is a point and we could all flog the House of Lords for a long time. There is a there is an issue around culture. 
because where Ian raises a, a good point is this culture that you get majority governments. Sometimes, you know, if, if we look at 2015, David Cameron, big changes came in with the Westminster government in 2015 based on about, what, 37% of the vote. Now, I'm not criticising David Cameron for that because he operated within the electoral system. But when we're in a system, and I've seen it in the House of Commons, where you try and bulldoze through decisions, yes, you've got a majority, but you're not taking the majority of the country with you. That's where a second chamber comes into its own in other countries. You know, if you look at the United States, the way it works, and even in unicameral systems or even in systems that are not associated with a state, like the European Parliament, where Ian and Catherine, you both sat in the European Parliament, where you have to talk to each other, where you have to try and... Um, gain some kind of, uh, you have to talk to each other, you have to open up government, you have to open up decision making. And I have to say that having been a special advisor in the Scottish Parliament where decisions were made by consensus, I thought that the UK Parliament or the House of Commons certainly was dreadful at it between 2017 and 2019. And I think the flaw in that was the culture that we have, the culture that hasn't changed, that a, a party gets a majority, bulldozes through whatever it likes. And that's something that politicians, I suppose, need to change. But that's something that's a cultural rather than an institutional change. But that's Stephen, Stephen, you've raised something uh, very uh, important here, which is you talk about culture as opposed to structures. If, if we look, say, at, at the Scottish Parliament, it, it's, a, it's a single chamber uh, parliament where revision and scrutiny comes through the committee system rather than through a rival uh, chamber. Could you stand back for, for a moment, as it, were, and, uh, as it were, as a political scientist, as opposed to as it were, uh, speaking out in a partisan uh, capacity, sort of look, look at the mechanics of those two alternatives and say what some of the pros and cons are? You know, with the institution and the culture, I, I, I think there's a chicken and egg situation here as well, because we talk about changing the the culture, but if you don't have the institutional methods of doing so, that that in politics you're there to do stuff. You know, you might disagree, but if you're sitting with a majority, you're there to do things. The Scottish parliamentary system was built, remember, that it would be very difficult for one party to get a majority. So I know that we're in a slightly different situation whereby, and remember only in only one term has a party had a majority in the Scottish Parliament. But I do think that looking at other systems, looking at Germany, looking at Ireland, even looking at the European Parliament is an interesting system of the way it can change. And I think that means draining away power from the House of Commons to distribute it elsewhere to the devolved administrations, but also to give a second chamber real power. But if you give a second chamber real power, you need to give it legitimacy. And the only way you can do that is through democratic accountability. Ian? I was a clerk in the Scottish Parliament in a number of capacities. And the curious thing was, there did come a point when I was a clerk of the European Committee where I would write all the questions for the members. We would then send them on to the ministers who didn't see them because it went to their advisors. I remember thinking at one point, we could just cut out the middleman here. We could just do it all by the clerks <laughs> and the advisors. Because from what I could see in the actual meetings, you know, all that happened was the question I'd written was read out. The answer which the special advisor or the civil servant had drafted was read back. And we're thinking, this is uh, interesting then. And were there ever follow-up questions? No, there weren't. And so you ended up, so the committee system, which was meant to be the completely different way of doing things, 
And that wasn't even when it was in its infancy. So it was already a decade plus old at that point, wasn't doing what it was meant to do, which was have the scrutiny in the committees where you can actually interrogate the information. What you were finding was the civil servants were fantastic. They were really beginning to interrogate and to respond. But the members were a little bit stand backish. They weren't too keen to get too heavily involved. And if you could finish that meeting in an hour rather than two hours, you got a hearty clap on the back because people were quite happy to get their lunch a wee bit earlier. Yeah, it rather, it rather reminds me of um, ac academic lecturing where the, where the ideal is for information to be passed from the notes of the lecturer to the notes of the students without passing through the minds of either. <laughs> now, you, you talked earlier about the, the, the German Bundesrat and about your openness to reform of, of the second chamber. What, what do you think is the best composition uh, of a second chamber? Do you favour election or the appointment of experts or regional representation? Uh, but, but you could do it by height if you want it. I mean, I'm quite, it depends how arbitrary you want to be. I think Stephen is right. Only a, an electoral process can give the full legitimacy. The reason why I say you could still have an element of appointment by an independent body is sometimes there's a benefit to that. But frankly, you could appoint them not to membership, but rather to uh, advisorship, if you like. So there are different ways of doing it. But you have to have legitimacy, and we don't have it. Catherine, could, could I ask you about the about the the, the, the composition of, uh, of of the House of Lords? Lord Fowler, the Lord Speaker, spoke last week, and he. he, he Although a Conservative, he was he was unhappy with, with the Johnson administration's uh, decision to enlarge the second chamber, which I, I think is now uh, at more than 800 members, is um, the second largest legislature in the world after 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 China's. So do, do you think, what, what would you suggest for composition? Well, certainly not this way. So I think we've got a lot to, to learn from others from. I do think that... Um, that having what, over 800 unelected representatives in, an, uh, in the mother of all democracies is something to reflect upon and one which really has to change. The fact that you have the Prime Minister's brother getting a peerage is, you know, in any other country, you would be completely and utterly questioning even to call yourself a democracy. <laughs> so... We are at a stage where we need to reform, and I think the makeup needs to be a mixture of what is happening across the nation. I think it has to re reflect the, the devolved settlement. Mm -hmm. I think it also has to reflect the country at large in terms of age diversity. I mean, we're at a moment where we're talking about power and privilege, and at a moment where our second chamber is certainly not talking about power and privilege the way other institutions are dealing with this. We have to look at diversity. We have to look at what kind of second chamber. I mean, I'm, I would disagree with Stephen in that I don't think that abolishing is the way forward. But I do think root and branch reform is a, a much a, a, a tighter chamber with less representatives, but more representative, representative of the country at large. Yeah, I, I wonder, Cassin, actually, if in a strange way we've actually got it right but maybe for the wrong reasons we've obviously we've taken an unusual route to get with where we are with the house of lords but when when one um sees the lords uh in, in action there are there are so many serious experts drawn from various walks of life and on top of that uh, intellectual uh, and scientific expertise we've got the 
the, the Lord's spiritual sitting in the house of Lords who are able to, to, to provide, as it were, an ethical, uh, moral dimension but, to... But, to, but to, to give that as experts, and I think this is the question about legitimacy. At the moment, we have our own Prime Minister who's appointed his own brother to be a peer. I mean, this is just unacceptable behaviour. It is, you know, however much I, I thought Joe Johnson was was competent. It's just, if we want to have buy-in about our democracy, our democracy is precious. And therefore, we need to ensure that our democracy has legitimacy and that power and privilege is checked with that. And if we want a representative second chamber, we have to have one that's representative of the nation and nations that make up this United Kingdom. Yeah, just to, to pick up, I mean, Colin, you just mentioned the bishops there. I mean, what an extraordinary state of affairs where you put Church of England bishops into your legislature. That in other countries they do have a separation of church and state. Again, it is no reflection on the bishops who often make very, very good contributions. But what a set of circumstances for that. Now, you could codify it and say, well, we'll have a set number of um, faith leaders and, and you yes. could set them out to go in. That's fine. I'm not sure I'd be in favour of that, but have the discussion and the debate rather than having bishops in there. But here's another point, and it's not a popular point. Now, I am never, ever going to sit in the House of Lords. You know, the, the party of which I am a, a member has said it, we'd never sit, and that's the right decision to make. So I can maybe make this point that others can't. In the House of Lords, people don't get paid. They don't get office allowance. It's difficult to get research allowance. So I'll make this point. If you're going to be legislating and your job is a legislator, I think that job should be taken pretty seriously. So I think that people should get paid to do the job. It shouldn't. You shouldn't have to be personally wealthy to be able to do it. I think if you do that job and you have a lot of correspondence, I can remember getting thousands of emails coming in a week when I was in when I was in Parliament. You need some assistance to do it and to be able to engage. But in the House of Lords at the moment, people get a daily allowance. Which if you live and work in London and can pop in and out, that's fine. But if you don't live and work in London, you, you know, it means that you often have a second job. And so it becomes a part time job without any support. And I think the basis for that is something that Ian said earlier on. And Ian mentioned that sometimes he's a wee bit embarrassed to tell people that he's a member of the House of Lords. But look at that state of affairs. This is a legislator where we're not properly supporting our legislators because of the nature of that legislator. And sometimes something is how how on earth do you get young people? to go into the House of Lords? How do you get people from different parts of the UK? And how do you get those who are not personally wealthy and are not doing it as a hobby? And I think that's that's a difficult question to answer, and one you can't answer when the House of Lords is the way it is at the moment. Stephen makes the point, which is a valid point. What you get from the House of Lords right now is remarkable for the level of support you offer them. The reason why it's, it's dominated by people who are retired is because you couldn't afford to, to work in London and maintain a home anywhere else in London on £300 a day, which sounds like a lot of money, except I'm in recess just now. So for the month of August, I would get no money at all, but I'd still have to pay my rent in London and my mortgage. And if I had any members of staff, they'd be coming out of my daily allowance to pay for them to support it. If I wanted to commission any work, that would be my money would have to pay for it. You really have a part-time upper chamber. That, that's exactly what it is. And it's designed to be that. And the reason why you've got so many peers who have outside interests is because more often than not, they have to pay the mortgage. And that seems like an odd thing to say when they are well remunerated by any average level. But to try and maintain you know, this kind of two-household approach, when I think back to the situation when I was an MEP, 
I was given an attendance allowance, which was higher than my current allowance and a salary, and a quarter of a million euros for my support staff and my teams. And I therefore had an extraordinary ability to do things and to be well supported in that. I could travel and, and visit people. I could commission research. I could do all this work. Right now, I struggle to manage to respond to letters because I've got to then get them all typed up myself, print them out, and then take them down to the post office if they're going to be going in letter form. You just don't have the time. So to my mind right now, you need root and branch reform of the upper house. What you decide to do should be considered carefully by the widest possible group at the points of bishops. Of course, there shouldn't be any bishops there. It's bonkers. You can't have one particular religion represented and not the others by an ex officio process. That wouldn't make any sense. And yet here we are. So it's crying out for change. The question is, what do we want the change to be? And the danger we face is we do it piecemeal, because we always do things piecemeal. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. We'll just shove it a bit to the left, shove it a bit to the right. I mean, there's not a single conservative peer who wouldn't mind the bishops going. They're the most left-wing people in the Lords. <laughs> My goodness. I mean, when you see what they come out with sometimes, you know, so in terms of that, you know, they'd be quite popular in terms of where the conservatives would be. But that's not the issue. We need to be clear what we want to achieve with the upper chamber. Catherine, maybe you wanted to come in. It, it was it, it was the point that I think Stephen was making about not saying you're a you're you're in the House of Lords, and did did you feel the same way about being an MEP sometimes? Because my experience was sometimes when we were MEPs, we didn't speak about some of the work that we did, and we didn't really talk about. And also, when we were MEPs, there were six of us for the whole of Scotland in a chamber which was legislating for 500 million people, and we were democratically elected, and there was legitimacy with that. So there's another side to that. I think I think your legitimate point about the support in the House of Lords as a working, active, wanting to be representative peer is something that is quite legitimate and something which you're right, that if you do not have an income, how are you meant to perform the role? So there is a legitimate point about that. But I think going back to democracy and election, how are we going to get it right? Should we have a citizens assembly to determine the future of a second chamber? What are the options open to us to get this right and ensure that if we are to have a second chamber, it is working, it is able, it is supported, and the people that are there don't have to say that they're, you know, what they do and kind of, they, you know, hide what they do or whatever, that they can actually talk openly about how they are there to represent the country. We've got a problem here, which is, I think that many people regard the biggest danger that the country faces is an elective di dictatorship because of the weakness of the second chamber. We've got a second chamber that is basically illegitimate. And because we tend to confuse appearance with function, we focus on the kind of the pageantry and the folderol of, of the House of Lords and ignore its, its role as a, as, a, as a revising chamber. Arguably, because it only operates now as what Andrew Ronsley has called a, a constitutional speed bump, with only having delaying powers, that actually we're weakened by not having a, a second chamber. I mean, is it a case that we actually ought to, I mean, we ought, ought to have something different from the Lords, but we ought to have a beefed up second chamber rather than one that's abolished? Well, I think this point on, on elective dictatorship is a good one. So, and I'm going to come up with a proposal as, as, as well on this, right? So I'm going to be brave. Let's take the EU referendum. Yeah, the EU referendum, nobody quite knew what it meant. It wasn't set out beforehand. Everybody was telling everybody else that they knew what the 
what we're going to call them, the British people actually wanted. Um, I remember it was Royston Smith, a very good, who was a Brexiteer, who was on committee with me and said, none of us know what the British people want. They all want different things from this. And it, it was and it was a fair observation. But that's why you have parliaments usually, because you have parliaments that, that should bring together, and they're never perfect, and there are always problems that bring together different strands of thought. And sometimes that can be a bit messy, and I'm sure in the European Parliament it can be a bit messy sometimes. But fundamentally, it's about pulling together different strands of thoughts. So here's an idea about something that I think the EU did well. When they pulled together the Lisbon Treaty, the EU pulled together governments, representatives of political parties together for a big forum. And it might look like a citizens' assembly that Catherine's just mentioned. And, and I remember the late, great and much-missed Professor Neil McCormack having a fantastic time on that. Well, why don't we try and pull together representatives of political parties, a citizens' assembly, representatives of the public to come up with some kind of second chamber? Because Brexit means big changes and things and the politics we're going on going through at the moment. If Scotland's independent over the next little while, what our future relationship looks like with Europe. The fundamental changes that are taking place right now will have far-reaching consequences. And that means you need a second chamber and you need that kind of democratic scrutiny. And I think that if you brought something like that together and each of the political parties said, we are committed to enacting that kind of change, that could be a way forward. And I think the Lisbon Treaty model pulling that together isn't a bad one. I'd like, I'd like to end on this theme of um, a reform proposal. Stevens has his, his shot. Briefly, I'd like a constitutional reform proposal for the second chamber from both Catherine and Ian. Okay, let me just go next. Divide the honorific. Allow people to be appointed lords, but don't have them appointed legislators. There you are, straight away. There's a difference between the title and the purpose. You then want to have, I think, a democratically elected upper chamber with a different term reference date, and you want it to be elected on a different basis. It could be proportional representation. You can do different ways of doing that. I think ideally you would do it according to larger constituencies, possibly even using the old Euro constituencies. Again, regions and nations allowing them to sit together, giving that legitimacy. You may want to have an element of appointment, possibly from the other parliaments and assemblies, and possibly some of the, the, the mayorities and so on. Possibly, maybe not. Do that, and you've begun to legitimise an upper chamber. I have a lot of sympathy with what Ian has just said and Stephen's point about a, a, almost a constitutional convention made up of a citizens mm -hmm. assembly with a, a number of political representatives plus civil society. I think that that would help get ideas there. I would like the devolved nations to have some representation in a second chamber and I would also like to see I think the point that you said about wider constituencies based in a proportional system, similar to what we had in terms of Euro constituencies, could be a, 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 a nice solution to some of the ideas that we need to look at for a better representative second chamber. Thank, thank you, all, all of you. This has been an absolutely fascinating and more importantly, good-natured discussion. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.